The following episode contains explicit language and description of scenes that sensitive listeners may find unsettling. There is no health without mental health. Greetings and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist and this podcast series is dedicated to the discipline of psychiatry discussing issues that, whilst emanating directly from the discipline, have implications for society generally. The series engages thought leaders from within the discipline and beyond to assist in exploring these issues and providing insights into some of the thinking that contributes to the richness of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of BRAVE. Have you ever wondered what it must be like to earn your living covering war as an embedded correspondent or photographer? Have you ever wondered what happens psychologically to journalists and photographers who experience combat without being combatants? On today's podcast, our topic is photographers in war zones, and I have the pleasure of interviewing Professor Anthony Feinstein and James Brabazon. Anthony is a neuropsychiatrist and professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, but in his distant past, he was in fact an alumnus of the University of the Witwatersrand here in Johannesburg, where he qualified as a medical doctor. Of relevance to today's conversation, Anthony has a specific research and clinical interest in the psychological effects of conflict on journalists, and amongst other books he has written was The Shooting War, which was published in 2018, where he interviewed conflict photographers who, as he put it, armed with only a camera, venture into the world's most dangerous places. James is a UK-based filmmaker and photojournalist who has covered conflict around the world, having filmed with U.S. troops in Baghdad and accompanied rebels in Liberia during the Civil War there, to name just two instances. His work is renowned in terms of award nominations, but in addition to his documentaries, he's also the author of several works of fiction, spy thrillers, and he has also given evidence as an expert witness at a war crimes trial in The Hague. I could go on, but then I would spend the episode talking about my two guests rather than with them. Anthony and James, welcome and thank you for joining us. I feel very privileged to be hosting you. When I planned this episode, I had no idea of uh, what was lurking, Ukraine. And uh, I know that maybe one doesn't want to get into the specifics of it, but before the actual invasion took place, Anthony and I had met in Johannesburg. And I remember Anthony saying to me, uh, this will not end well. And uh, I'll say no more about that. But James, given your inclination towards adventure, and I'm paraphrasing content from your, your website, would you like to be in the Ukraine right now? Uh, no, I wouldn't like to be in the Ukraine right now. And um, uh, I'm very glad that I'm able now to provide more of a support um, and advice role right. uh, in the work that I do rather than actually working on the ground. And it's true, you know, um, I was uh, very keen on the experiential adventurous side of the work that I did as well of of course as the the journalistic integrity of it um and the storytelling involved yes but um I was a fair bit younger then and a bit faster and um you know uh right now um a, a very key part of what I do um at channel four 
which is a public service broadcaster in the United Kingdom, right. is overseeing all hostile environments deployments. Um, so that means that I have oversight for the security arrangements for our crews working um, in the Ukraine. And, you know, uh, what we're trying to do is keep people working um to be being productive, safe, secure for themselves and right. also for their contributors and the people around them who are relying upon um, the the measures in place by the production to keep people safe. Okay, so basically you've kind of shifted from an on-the-ground um, reporter, photographer, filmmaker to taking on a more uh, support-orientated role and... The suggestion is it's more befitting of where you are in your career right now. Would you would you agree with I'd that? Say, I'd say that's true. Also, as well, coincidentally, where I live is uh, is on a uh, is on the beach in the um, uh, southeast of England, and uh, through happenstance, um, have found myself living in the epicenter of the UK's migrant crisis. Aha! Uh-huh. So we we very regularly have large boatloads of people literally washing up onto our beach which is 100 yards from my front door so um there's no escaping the news and there is no escaping the um the trauma and suffering that can go with that both for people who are experiencing it directly and for people who are involved in it vicariously right so shifting from the present i just want to go back in terms of your history I mean, being a war photographer, filmmaker, was that a boyhood dream? How did that come about? How did you start walking this path that's brought you to where you are now, given everything that you've been through? I'll give you the extremely short answer to that. Right. (laughs) You can expand if you like. Okay. Um, I was meaningfully raised by my grandparents and particularly my two grandfathers who had both fought in the Second World War and who, uh, one of whom in particular was a, a, an amazing storyteller. And I grew up surrounded by, inspired by stories of their daring do during the war. Okay. Um, I was also really interested in traveling. And by the time I was 16, I met where well, I was living in Kent. I'd met a French photographer who was teaching me how to take photographs and develop my own work. And then I discovered the work and writing of Don McCullen. And I thought, well, here we go. Here are the the lives of my grandfathers, who I deeply admired, the love of photography, love of travel. And I could wrap this all into one thing. And obviously, what I'm going to do is become a photojournalist. And uh, I then very quickly discovered that um, without... Uh, a private income yes. <laughs> or supernatural talent that was unlikely to happen quite in the way that I'd hoped it would when I was 16. Right. Um, but uh, one way or another, I persevered and I went into photography. I worked as an assistant. I became a photographer that then eventually allowed me to start working in reportage rather than just studio work and portraiture and for for newspapers and magazines. And I eventually followed the path of a photographer and then a filmmaker in conflict. And would say from the outset that there was a very strong 
personal egotistical motivation to do it in the first place Being? I, mean, I was a, a young man right. on an adventure an adventure and i would say that my you know i by the time i got to west africa and i spent a long time immersed in the liberian civil war living um and filming the rebels in the north of the country for weeks and weeks on end um it became very clear to me that I had fundamentally misunderstood what my grandparents had done. In what they sense? Had, they have both fought in a war of national survival. Right. And fundamentally, although they were both volunteers, they fought because, well, they went to war mm. um, because they had to. Right. Not, not necessarily because they'd wanted to. And I fundamentally went to war because I wanted to, not because I had to. Okay. And that sense of motivation, I think, is really important. It's also very important for understanding and managing trauma as well. Yes. Because the motivation is a key factor in all risk assessment. And understanding personal motivation is the mechanism by which one either consciously or unconsciously makes decisions about which risks are worth taking and which ones aren't. I'd also say that I realized very quickly, apart from the fact that the obvious immediate realization that war is an obscenity, mm. that there are reasons, the reasons why people go to war and the reasons why people stay at war are usually very different. Okay. And I wanted to do something which was adventurous and exciting, but I also wanted to do something which was inherently infused with moral purpose. Right. And it was the, the changing relationship between which was most important that ultimately came to define my career. Okay. So I think that... I mean, what comes through for me is that, you know, young man adventure and there's a kind of a, I don't know if I want to use the word idealized, but there's a, but there's a certain view, maybe glamour. I'm, I'm not sure, um, what kind of motivates there, but I, I take your point that if you want to put yourself in a situation that already speaks to a certain character that you have that may mitigate against traumatic experiences within that context, although one can never predict. I mean, is that, is that, is that kind of what I've understood correctly? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, essentially, um, going, going away to war. You put it another way. Yes. Put it another way. It's very, there are lots of societies where it's really clear when you've become a man. Right. The, the passage from boyhood to manhood is really clear. And in the industrialized, rich West, we just don't have that anymore. And we haven't had it for a very long time. So we're talking about rites of and, passage in a sense. Yeah. I wanted to do something that would definitively make my grandparents proud of me right even though one of them by that point would had been um dead, dead for some time okay. i wanted to do something that would definitively make them proud of me i wanted to do something where i could say at the end of it i've done this i've experienced this i am a man right that is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of what 
manhood is, and it is fundamentally to misunderstand the nature of war. And I, I could just say my first, I mean, I experienced war before I went to West Africa, but in Liberia, the first actual act of war that I saw was an incredibly violent gang rape of another man. That sounds horrendous. And so immediately the idea that there was anything actually glamorous or glorious about war evaporated extremely quickly so let me stop so, le so, so let me stop you there because i'm i'm kind of curious this is your first experience of what war can actually look like and at that point are you thinking to yourself what the hell am i doing here i've just walked into a nightmare not exactly i think tim hetherington that i work with a lot had had that initial feeling was oh my god you, i mean i think he actually said you fucked it this time right you're, you've you've gone too far you're going to get killed you're going to let everyone down your friends and family and i didn't have that feeling the best i can get to it is like having a shutter locked on wide open and you okay you're burning the film out i w i was extremely receptive to everything around me and i knew that i was in a very difficult position but i was extremely hungry for the experience and and the extremity of it so so you're busy seeing this unfold in front of you and you from what i'm understanding what you've just said you kind of revert to well i'm here as a professional to capture and document and that's the mode you get into whilst you're witnessing this heinous brutality in front of you Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I'd worked as a photographer pretty extensively, and I, at this point, was making a film, which right. I had really no idea how to do. And that first film I made was for the SABC. Um, oh. If, in fact, yeah. So, SABC, I mean, South African Broadcasting Corporation. Correct, yeah. Okay. That's right. So, I... I... I really had no idea what I was doing, I'll be honest with you. And I... The process of becoming, of coming to understand that I was actually quite good at what I was doing was a kind of revelation, really, because, and this doesn't sound terribly exciting, but when, if you're a combat camera man, if you're, if you're a camera operator working in conflict, you do actually have to stand up and take the photograph. And you have to keep still for a period of time as well. Right. And most people's natural inclination is to run away from gunfire and explosions and, and firefights. And I found myself quite willing to walk towards them and stand up and take the, the pictures. And I was quite adept at getting, you know, not artistically great uh, by any means, but I could get the thing I was filming in the middle of the frame, get it sharp and get the, the audio. And I remember distinctly thinking to myself, lying in a ditch at one point as a battle was going on, thinking... Damn it, James! You finally found something you're good at. So, I mean, do, do, I mean, I, I just got to ask there: Do you regard yourself, or would you have regarded yourself prior to 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 that experience as somebody who was particularly brave or particularly reckless, novelty seeking? No. How would you have thought about yourself prior to that? Not at all. No. Okay. Do you think bravery comes into it? Well. It's a, it's a very fine line between bravery and stupidity. Mm. I would say by the point I'd been in there for two months and we were continuously, pretty much continuously in combat for 
28 day stretch at one point. Right. I, I was fully aware of the nature of the situation that I was in. Um, some people have a natural aversion to those sorts of situations and others don't, uh, suspect that people that do are more rational and better balanced than people that don't. And I found myself quite able to do it. And I, as a photographer, I, you know, I was okay. I was making a living, but I wasn't great. I wasn't, it wasn't amazing. I wasn't like super talented. Um, but I felt able to operate as a, in a conflict situation quite naturally, weirdly. So do you think that you were able to remain, because maybe you did, maybe you didn't, emotionally neutral? Because to some extent one has to be uh, uh, reasonably emotionally neutral to simply document what's happening because that's your job, that's what you're there to do. You're not technically connected to what is happening, although you're present in terms of observing these things. So, so are you ever able, or were you ever able to be truly emotionally neutral or, 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 or unaffected and just simply document what you were seeing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around neutrality, objectivity, detachment for journalists. Uh, fundamentally, we're all people right. and uh, one of the most frightening things about working in Liberia with the rebels that I was with was that actually there was an, we had an awful lot more in common with each other than the things that separated us. In what way? Once you, well, once you remove the trappings of war, um, you know, the weapons and the uniforms and the, and the crazy names and everything. What for me was truly chilling was those people that I could have quite regular, normal conversations with, and we chat and talk about stuff. Would then get up and shoot one of the prisoners. Okay, so this that is was, that was that was yeah. challenging because yeah. what you you at that point were truly looking into a mirror. Because in a sense, I mean, you're doing your job, they're doing their job, and outside of either of you doing the job that you're there to do. And I'm regarding their warmongering and, and, and involvement in war as a kind of a job. That's what they're there to do. You kind of sit down afterwards and have a smoke and have a drink and have a chat as if, you know, it's just it's, what, just what one did. It's tricky. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't to suggest that there was anything about that that condoned what they were doing. No, no, sure. But the sure. simple fact of it was that they were keeping me alive. Right. And there was a, an, a new, a tacit understanding that my daily survival relied upon their yep their largesse. So, in a sense, I mean, how did because obviously they're the combatants. You're not a combatant. You are busy documenting what they are doing. In a sense, mm. so I mean, what I'm understanding is that they related to you very much See, as a as a fellow traveller along that path. I think you have to be careful with that, you see, because yeah. this is possibly an unpopular opinion, but anyone that works in a frontline capacity, um, whether you're a journalist or, you know, whatever, anyone that works in a frontline capacity, at some point you are going to take measures for your own survival. Right. Everyone has a natural and inalienable right of self-defense. And at some point you are going to exercise that right, however you do it. So in other I'm words, about, and at that point, you are necessarily no longer an observer. You right. are inherently involved. You are a participant. So the idea, sorry, it's okay. The, the idea that you can 
be detached and observer neutral in conflict is fund in a, in a particularly in a very frontline capacity is fundamentally wrong in my opinion okay so i mean you don't specifically go into a situation with a decision to position yourself in terms of what your bias might be or, or, or where you stand necessarily morally on, on the issues, you're simply there to document. And my question is, how do you decide which side to be on of the documenting? Because there are clearly two sides in a conflict. I don't think there are clearly two sides in a conflict. I think there okay. are as many sides as there are people. Um, and that there are in any conflict, even if you look at it and in a macro level, there will be multiple sides. In in Liberia, for example, um, there were, I, I would say, probably half a dozen identifiable factions with their own very specific agenda, whether that was US intelligence, right. UK intelligence, um, Liberian mercenaries, South African mercenaries. They were all in the mix. Right. Um, and... I don't think it's true to say that people go necessarily just to document. It's a, I was, I fully participated in that conflict in my right. own way. And okay. that is, is uncomfortable, but it's true. Do you have any regrets? <laughs> I know that's, no. No, no, <laughs> that's no, a tough no, question. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I well, don't. I, so, the question for me is, when you've witnessed such brutality, um, can you remain optimistic about humanity? Well, that's uh, for, for a small question. <laughs> I mean, I'll give it a go. But, um, okay, so the optimistic thing is that I think... Right. Well, as I was saying before, when you look, when you look at people and you realise that actually, you know... Um, Nazis, uh, genocide rebels, whatever, they're not space aliens. Right. Right. They didn't land here from outer space. They're human beings. They're people. They've been created. They are a product of society, of families, of upbringing, of education. And so if you can create monsters, you can also create angels. Right. So I think that the, the seeds for human salvation are there. Right. It depends how they're watered and nourished and and directed, and I I'm very I'm I'm very reluctant to write people off anyone, and it's like difficult to say this. I'm reluctant to write anyone off as a lost cause, right? And I don't want to bring a sort of necessarily spiritual or metaphysical dimension to this, but you can, but. Um, I think there is, you know, if you, I'm, I'm a Christian, yes. um, practicing Christian, and I truly believe that all humans contain within them the spark of the divine. And so, consequently, no one is beyond redemption. Well, Getting to that point. That's another story. Another right. Forgiveness is another matter. Right. But I, is someone inherently condemnable? out of hand permanently and inexorably and forever, I don't think so. Okay. I think that's fair enough. So on a more personal note, how do these experiences, and we've spoken specifically about the Liberian experience, but there have been many others. I mean, how have they affected your personal life in terms of relationships or your, or your physical or emotional health? 
Well, <laughs> with well, physical health, I lost an awful lot of weight in the jungle. I developed some chronic and endemic illnesses, which will never go away. Um, but they don't bother me so much anymore. Um, mentally, uh, I had trauma counselling for traumatic um, a traumatic stress reaction. Um, I have ongoing issues with intrusive thoughts and recollections of events, which can be very visceral and tangible. Right. Um, I went through multiple relationship failures, which were clearly my own fault. Um, and I would say as much as anything, it was actually the fact that not the, the lasting effects of one particular job, but the fact that I did this consistently for years, yeah. it just meant having any kind of settled relationship was almost impossible, and which led to divorce and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, I feel in a much happier, more stable place now. And I have those memories and I think about things, but I, mm. I, I think it's in a more... I think I've assimilated those experiences into a more healthy, holistic lifestyle. Okay. So I mean, it's just sounding like a hippie. No, no, no. <laughs> no. It's a lot easier. See what it's a lot easier getting to grips with life when you're not in a sensible and kind of like meaningful way, when you're not constantly wondering if you're about to get blown up or captured or kidnapped. Um, on the other hand, um, it does take a bit of getting used to when that's no longer your present, present Absolutely. daily reality. Well, I was going to ask you, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I think you answered that actually up front, was what happens to a war photographer if they survive? And what it seems to me is that you move into a more settled space. You use the knowledge experience that you've garnered over many, many years to take on a, a, a slightly different role that's more befitting of, of where you are in terms of maturity, age, etc. And it seems to me that that's kind of where you've landed right now. That's very kind of you to say so. Um, <laughs> I think the job gives you, know, at the risk of sounding like Liam Neeson, um, I have a very specific set of skills. <laughs> and um, I... I it, you know, I, I was... I, I was uh, I owe the industry a lot. Right. I was mentored. I was helped. I was encouraged. Um, people helped me as I went through. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now. I see a younger generation coming through. Um, I think it's very helpful when people make mistakes. I think they learn from their mistakes. Right. But I think the role of someone like me is to make sure that those people don't make immediate terminal mistakes. Okay. And to help people thrive I do ultimately, we've, you know, at the end of the day, what the nature of the job is, is to tell the stories of people whose stories otherwise wouldn't be told and to tell them in an authentic and credible way, which is a key part of a properly functioning democracy. Got it. And that's, that's what the importance is. And that needs to be supported top, bottom, left, right and center. And if that's what I do now, then great. And you don't have to be on the ground yeah. to be a conflict, to be involved in conflict reporting. Got it. Well, James, I mean, that's been hugely 
enlightening. And I'm going to switch to Anthony. Um, Anthony, as a psychiatrist, listening to James, you've obviously spent time interviewing, researching, treating war correspondents. Um, what are your thoughts and, and, and what are some of your findings and, 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 and clinical observations in terms of, of this uh, uh, situation with, with war correspondents in combat zones and how they are impacted and, and how it impacts on them thereafter? Well, well, thanks, Chris. Um, James will forgive me when I say that you spoke about so many different things. We could probably have a two-day conference to go <laughs> over topics that you, that you spoke about. Um, uh, so let me, let, me, you know, let me start at the beginning, which yes. is that I became interested in this topic um, because of a patient who I had in Toronto 20 years back who, who was a war journalist who had developed significant psychological difficulties because of her walk, her work in a, in a zone of conflict, and she became my patient, and I was very interested in her life. She did well with therapy, and she recovered, but I found to my surprise that there was no published literature on the topic of journalists and trauma and war. Um, you know, being a researcher and running a research team, I had done a, 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 a reference search and couldn't come up with a single publication. Sorry, so Anthony, just in, to, just to jump in, in, can you just date that? When was that? That was when? That was just prior to 9-11, um, towards okay. the end of 1999, early 2000. Got it. Sorry, carry on. And so, you know, you know, you know this, because there's a very large PTSD literature on veterans and on victims of assault and rape and um, you know, policemen, etc. But there wasn't a single publication written on journalists. And so I thought, well, this is intriguing. You know, why is there this gap in the psychiatric literature? And I wrote a grant application and I sent it to the Freedom Forum uh, in Washington, D.C. And their mandate was, you know, freedom of speech and they were looking after journalists' rights. And, um, you know, pre-9-11, the... Uh, the world was in a different place. The corporations were flush with money, and the Freedom Forum got back to me very quickly and said, hey, this is a great idea. You know, why don't you go and look at frontline journalists and tell us how they're doing psychologically? And they funded the first study, which is what I what I did for for about a year. And, you know, the results showed, no surprise, that journalists who define their careers by working in war zones or conflict zones were at risk for conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder and major depression. So the findings, you know, intuitively made sense. But what I found really striking about this group of people was the extraordinarily dangerous lives that they led. I mean, I was somewhat naive about that. I mean, I, I came to realize that journalists like James have more exposure to conflict and war than soldiers in many ways, because soldiers have a tour of duty and that's it. You know, right. occasionally maybe a second tour of duty and usually a third tour of duty, but then they come home. But, you know, James and his colleagues go back to war year after year after year, the most difficult, dangerous places on the planet, and they keep doing it. And the first group that I studied, you know, on average, they'd been doing it for 15 years. So the cumulative exposure to risk and right. war, I think, is unparalleled. There isn't a profession that can say, um, we've had more exposure to events that could have killed us than frontline journalists. But I mean, that's a, that's a profound observation, Anthony, because I think that, uh, you know, there's that sense that it's soldiers, they're in the front line, but as you say, they are intermittently in the front line, whereas the journalists, that's what they do for a living, so they move from, towards different conflicts. I mean, one conflict gets resolved, the soldiers are out, whereas the journalists move on. So I think that's a very profound observation, actually. 
Exactly. And so when you when you look at, you know, the stress of what that entails, just exposure to, you know, extreme stress, then you can understand why the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder are relatively high in this group. That said, you know, the other mm-hmm. side of the coin is the majority of frontline journalists will not develop PTSD, but those who do are a significant minority. And so we published those findings in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And um, to the credit of certain media organizations, they found it interesting. They took it up and said, hey, this is, you know, these, these data are, are novel. Uh, we didn't know this. And now what are we going to do to help journalists? And very slowly, a climate started to change within newsrooms and news organizations started to say, hey, we need to take psychological health more seriously because up until then, it really wasn't on their radar screens at all. There was somehow this tacit assumption that you could send journalists into the world's most dangerous places mm. and they would emerge unscathed. Why? Because, you know, we're neutral observers, we're not combatants, and, you know, so war's going to pass us by. Uh, but of course it doesn't. You know, um, journalists can, you know, they get killed and they get exposed to, you know, horrific events. And so I think that early study that was published in the American Journal was something of a game changer. It was a wake up call to media organizations that um, you really need to take this topic more seriously. And no sooner had we published that paper than um, another conflict started. There was 9-11. Right. And soon after that, there was, you know, the, the, the coalition forces going into Afghanistan. And then after that, there was a war in Iraq. And because I had published this one paper, news organizations started to sound me out. And they said, you know, we've got a, we've got a large number of journalists who are going to be going into the war in Iraq shortly. Um, we're worried about them. Some of them will be attached to military units. Is that protective or is that harmful? Mm-hmm. And I said... But, you know, we can do research. And so we started a whole train of research looking at how frontline journalists deal with combat and, and, and war. Tell me something. Were you able to determine from your research who might be the most vulnerable and who might be the least vulnerable to the emergence of post-exposure psychopathology under these circumstances? Yeah. So I'm really glad you asked that because we're just putting the finishing touches to a paper in which – I brought together my cumulative data set over the past 20 years, Hmm. and that involves over 1,000 frontline journalists, and we have a number of variables that allow us to explore this question. And, you know, these are journalists who have worked in Iraq, um, in in Syria. Um, We've had journalists in Mexico, which is a very dangerous place, of course. Journalists in Kenya covering the Al-Shabaab violence. Um, uh, Journalists in in Iran with the state really hammers journalists. So, you know, a very wide scattered array of journalists across different countries, cultures, etc. We put it into this big data set. We've got sophisticated statistical tools that allow us to control for things like culture and language, etc. when it comes to trauma. And we were able to distill three variables that are predictive of how people are going to respond to trauma. Number one, women journalists do worse. Hmm. And that's a robust finding. The second is that good relationships are protective. So if you're in a marriage, the marriage is a good one, it's protective. And the third big risk factor is that if you go into this with a past history of psychological difficulties, you're going to be more vulnerable and develop PTSD. Now, there's nothing novel about those findings, because if you look at the trauma literature, these variables crop up repeatedly. But what we've shown for the first time, I think, is that across the spectrum of conflict journalism, these three variables give us clues as to who's going to develop symptoms and who don't, and who doesn't. So... Coming back to the actual news organizations, you know, because we're all, you know, in the, in the corporate sector, it's all about wellness. 
and mental wellness and mental health and emotional well-being. So, I mean, where does your research fit into media organizations in terms of their commitment towards, well, I'm going to say occupational health and safety, but I mean, really moving into these kind of situations, I don't know that we can necessarily speak about health and safety, but certainly in terms of wellness and keeping their personnel uh, well. I mean, where does your research fit into that? Well, I think the message is a simple one that, you know, news organizations have a moral responsibility to look after their journalists. I mean, you know, if a journalist breaks a leg, no one thinks twice about sending the journalist to the emergency room to get the leg, you know, fixed. Right. Put in a car. But if someone breaks psychologically, somehow there's been a barrier to helping journalists at times. And so um, that's starting to change now. I'm really pleased that it's changing. But, you know, 20 years back, that was the mindset. You know, people weren't thinking about the psychological welfare of journalists, even though news organizations were sending them into the world's most dangerous places. So I believe, you know, very strongly that there's a moral responsibility on the part of news organizations to look after journalists, both physically and psychologically. And one should not make a distinction between the two. What's interesting about my work over the years is that while it started out looking at journalists on the front lines of conflict, it's changed over time to also helping you know, local domestic journalists who are now experiencing, you know, tremendous um, pressures and at times having to, you know, cover very difficult stories. And I'll give you examples of that. Yes. Um, you know, the climate crisis right now, you know, journalists who are devoted to um, climate change are witnessing horrendous um, images of, you know, um, people's livelihoods being upended, towns being destroyed, horrendous fires, catastrophic floods, etc. And it's one environmental crisis after another. And, 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 you know, they're moving from one event to the other, you know, witnessing people in extreme distress who've lost so much. You know, that's, you know, that's tough work for some journalists. So, um, so what you're saying is that within certain contexts, the practice of journalism is a potentially high-risk uh, occupation. This is not simply just about reporting stories, but it's the constant exposure to the difficulties in terms of what you've just described now, climate change, consequences, what James had described earlier, the depravity that one sometimes experiences. So, I mean, journalism is a, is a, is a high risk profession, it seems to me. It is. And, you know, people have known about that for a long time. When you go into the psychological literature, there's a list of, you know, what are high risk professions. And, you know, journalism has always been close towards the top of, of, you know, what's a risky profession. So, you know, people have known about this for a long time. I think what's changing now is this understanding that journalists need to be helped, that you can't allow, you know, people to do this kind of work and kind of hang them out to dry if they develop psychological difficulties, because we know that these problems can take people down very hard. You know, PTSD, depression, bring people down very hard indeed. Absolutely. But going beyond those three variables that you, that you, that you mentioned earlier and something that uh, James touched on, this idea of a motivated journalist who wants to be in that situation, do you see that as mitigation against the development of consequent emotional difficulties? Has that come through in your research at all? It hasn't. I mean, I do, however, believe, you know, listening to James's story, his personal story, it really does resonate because I've heard this from other journalists as well. But, you know, the issue that we haven't discussed over here is that, you know, what allows someone like James or colleagues like his to do this work for such a long period of time? Right. And, you know, then we come down to biology and the biology of risk and this enormous literature on what's called 
and maybe an unfortunate terminology, sensation-seeking. But we know that there are certain individuals who have a biological predisposition that attracts them to a more adventurous lifestyle. And this is going to be linked to things like dopamine and dopamine receptors and maybe some other neurotransmitters like noradrenaline. And we know from genetics that a large part of this is heritable. In other words, we get it from our genes. Right. So this goes, there we are. So it plays into, you know, in many ways, James Humphrey. So, you know, there are individuals who have a biology that allows them to do this kind of work. Indeed, they're attracted to this kind of work. And journalists have said to me that often when they're in the midst of the most horrendous circumstances, they are thinking with great clarity. Mm. Whereas other people who do not have this biological uh, predisposition put them in a situation like that and they fall apart completely. They can't focus. They they just cannot function. So, you know, biology plays a very strong role in determining, you know, wh- what we do with our lives and our careers. Yes, there are going to be very strong psychosocial influences. And I think James's history is an eloquent example of that. The grandparents who you know, did certain deeds, etc. He was a young man listening to their stories. This becomes a formative experience. But I would put it to you that unless James had a certain biological makeup, he wouldn't have been able to have kept going in the world's most dangerous places for such a long period of time. And it's not just, you know, frontline journalists. You see this in high mountaineers as well, exactly the same thing. You know, what drives people back to these hazardous mountains year after year, even though they know that it's so dangerous? And they have a certain biology that... Um, allows them to do this and um, makes situations like this attractive to them. And in the moment, they think with great clarity. Tell me something. I, okay. I I wanted to just jump, sorry to interrupt you, but what keeps coming through my mind is how do people then adapt to civilian life? Because essentially, I mean, you, you're living in a state of constant conflict, high stress, Excitement, adrenaline, etc., etc., and then you come back to civilian life. And 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 all I want to touch on in terms of my own personal experience. I mean, Anthony, you did your two years in the National Defence Force, so did I, and uh, I, I was involved in Angola towards the end. And I can remember coming out, um, and it was a literally a switch on, switch off. You literally stepped out of uniform into civilian life, having been in the midst of conflict. And suddenly you were back in civilian life and going to the movies. And so the question is, you know, what is your experience of how journalists adapt to what I'm calling civilian life after that kind of experiences? It it, it can be very difficult. And, you know, some of the counseling that I've done over the years is exactly on this question. How do you leave a war zone behind and come back to civil society where life can seem very mundane and boring and, you know, things that worry people like the washing machine is broken or the car needs to go into the garage for a service, you know? And, you know, 24 hours before that, you were, you know, dealing with life and death matters and you know, matters of national importance. And so the transition can be extraordinarily difficult. But here's the point that if if journalists cannot make the transition back to civil society, they get into further difficulty because then your relationships start fraying. And I've already spoken to you, you know, how good relationships are protective 
um, you know, we've got, you know, we've got good empirical proof now to show that if you've got a good relationship, it mitigates against developing PTSD and depression. And so if you come back from one war zone, but your home environment, in a sense, becomes another war zone because you can't reintegrate comfortably back into civil society, then you lose that buffer. You lose a protective factor. And you're coming back to a situation that's an ongoing stress. And so I think it's extremely important for journalists to learn how to make this transition back into a life that, you know, at first glance can seem so mundane and so boring. And, and just one little anecdote on, yes. this, on this. I remember having this discussion with the great war photographer James Natchery, and he said to me that early on in his career, you know, he had difficulties making this transition until he came to realize that, you know, when he come back to a calmer civil society that's not in conflict, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you don't think you're going to die kind of thing, he says, you know, it's much healthier to live that way. Sure. It's much better to worry about your taxi being late or the washing machine being broken than to worry about, you know, are my children going to die? You know, why, is it, why are there no schools? Am I going to survive? Why is there no food? So, you know, you have to shift your thinking. You have to shift your cognitive constructs into, yep, you know, there's much less excitement over here, but this is a much healthier way to live. I just wanted to touch on two other consequences which we haven't specifically mentioned, namely substance abuse and suicide. And what are your thoughts on that, Anthony, or what has your experience been in terms of these being consequences of some of the situations that you've worked with clinically? Well, you know, Chris, as you know, there's going to be a strong comorbidity between things like post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and substance abuse. And so, um, you know, our data certainly shows that there are some journalists who drink to excess. Now, it's interesting, you know, the Canadian Medical Association says a man shouldn't drink more than 14 drinks a week. And at times when I presented that to journalists, they kind of scoff at that. They say, you know, 14, it's a little on the low side. <laughs> it's 14 I mean, a day. I'm, I'm laughing out loud here, by the way. I, just, I mean, okay, you know, 14 as an aperitif maybe before you get into serious stuff. But honestly, you know, you know so... So there's a culture of that, for, you know, for some gen. But at the same time, I think the danger, you know, jokes aside, is that there's a tendency to self-medicate your emotional distress with alcohol or other drugs. And that's right. not just unique to journalists. That's that, that's a common uh, behavioral trait in people who are distressed. And so when you use alcohol because you can't sleep or because you're feeling anxious, that's a very maladaptive behavior. You know, alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. Absolutely. You know, it can have up with your sleep patterns and your architecture. And so, you know, by all means, have a drink socially and enjoy liquor, and it's great in those circumstances. But never use a substance to self you know, to self medicate yourself rather get therapy and that's the message that i put across to journalists that self medication with these kinds of substances is very harmful it creates further problems suicide as for as for suicide you know that's that's a really excellent question um we have some data related to that but it's not you know it's not good good empirical epidemiological data um so i'm reluctant to you know comment on it in a definitive way certainly um i've come across instances of a journalist committing suicide are the rates higher in the profession than elsewhere i honestly don't know mm. other than for me to say and this is something that i think you're on pretty firm grounds over here that when rates of depression are higher than they are in the general population when rates of PTSD are higher than they are in the general population, you've got a group that potentially is at risk for suicide. And that's just a mental health truth across all disciplines, not just journalism. So 
as we're coming to the end, I want to start at the beginning. Should journalists being sent into conflict zones, and I'm not sure whether they are or whether they aren't, should they be briefed in any specific way or screened specifically? Because I'm going back to James. I don't think that, James, that was necessarily a consideration. That was just something that you wanted to do, and that's what you ended up doing. But as we're looking at the emerging data and our sort of greater understanding of the pitfalls of conflict uh, journalism, so to speak. I mean, Anthony, would you say that there's a role for that or is that something that uh, uh, already exists? I am very leery of screening people and saying, you know, what people can and cannot do. I think right. that, that's a fundamental mistake. I think far better is for journalists to be educated on this topic that we're talking about now. I think when you educate journalists about, you know, what's good psychological health, yes. what are potential factors, what are protective factors, I think that's the way to go. I think the last thing that psychiatry wants to do is start screening, you know, people and saying you're good for this and you're good Absolutely. for that because we're going to make a lot of mistakes. And, you know, historically we've had a tendency to do that as a profession yeah. and, you know, we tend to regret it bitterly in retrospect. So I think, no, I wouldn't recommend that, but I think educating journalists about the mental health risks of their profession mm. is something that's very, very helpful. Why not? You know, journalists go on hostile environment training where they learn to keep themselves physically safe, and that's such an important part of uh, of, the, of you know of, of their training. Why not bring in? A psychological component as well. Educate journalists about what's good mental health. You know, what is PTSD? What are protective factors? Because right. I think when you're educate, educated about it, you're better informed and you can potentially make fewer mistakes. I think, Anthony, that makes a lot of sense. James, what would you say to that? Well, I think there's, I mean, yes, 100%. And I think it's one of the things that's changed very significantly in the last 20 years. Um, when I came back from Liberia, for example, the reason that I was referred to counselling was because I had a very frank conversation with my GP, with my local doctor, who then referred me on for counselling. That absolutely did not come from any of my colleagues, broadcasters or producers, production houses I was working with. And now I think that's different. One of the One of the key things that broadcasters can do is to initiate a conversation. You can allow that discourse and that language to become an embedded natural part of the conversation that exists around hostile environments deployments. So rather than an, an individual producer or journalist having to breach a wall of silence, which can be very difficult or even impossible for some people, if that conversation is always initiated by the broadcaster so that you know that there is a non-judgmental safe space in which to have those conversations and if an understanding of psychological trauma is built into the very initial risk assessment process which helps enable and contain the project that makes makes it much easier for people to communicate and fundamentally at the root of this is communication, whether it's education, whether it's an expression of um, discontent or needing to talk about fears, hopes, retrospectively or in advance. It all boils down fundamentally to communication and those channels need to be open and they need to be open in a way that recognises, as Anthony was saying, there's a, a very um, specific demographic, a very specific cohort of people who are interested in pursuing this line of work. And whether it, you know, it's biological, social, 
a mixture. There is... the conversations need to be very specifically tailored to that cohort and to their their interests and predilections. One of one of the things that I've has been it's an uncomfortable truth, which goes back to something you were both saying earlier, is that one of the one of the uncomfortable truths about war is that sometimes it's fun. Mm. People 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 enjoy it. Some of the best, most meaningful experiences I've had the most enjoyable experiences I've had have been at war. Same was true of my grandparents as well. And you, 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 whether you like that or not, you have to embrace it to understand it in order to, A, help people who are exposed to it, and B, ultimately, I think everyone's ultimate, ultimate end goal is to reduce and, in a utopian way, ultimately eliminate war, well, you're never going to achieve that if there is not an understanding in the very first place of the motivations that lie behind why predominantly young men want to go to war, why it's meaningful to them. Well, I think that's uh, what we might call an inconvenient truth. Anthony, any closing, any closing statements from yourself or, 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 or thoughts based on what James has just said? Yeah, I mean, to pick up on the last point, I would agree. I mean, you know, Chris Hedges wrote a book 20 years back, which I think is a really important book. It's, you know, war is a force that gives us meaning. Right. You know, why are people attracted to it? And, you know, um, and people are. And that's why, you know, wars endure. And that's why um, uh, they're not going to end. I don't believe they'll ever end. Um, I'll just finish with one observation that I think comes back to something James said to to try and get an understanding of his transition from, you know, being on the, the front lines in Liberia to to where he, he finds himself now. And James, forgive me for kind of focusing on you, but I think, you know, many, you would know that many of your colleagues have followed very similar routes and that when they were younger, they did this and then they kind of move into a different, into a different role as you get older. And, you know, it comes back once again to biology. Um, the neurotransmitters that are so pivotal in our behavior, things like dopamine, Noradrenaline, they change with the passage of time. Um, and that's why our behaviors start changing. Mm-hmm. When you look at risk-taking behavior, um, it's most prominent in young men, more than women, because we have different levels of these neurotransmitters. And it's most frequent and profound when we're in our 20s or in our late teens. I mean, if you can hang around a, an emergency department in a hospital and see who comes in with the road traffic you know, it's the young guys who are driving too fast. And so, you know, there's a biology to these behaviors. But as we get older, um, everything changes, unfortunately. You know, the neurotransmitters change. And so our behavior starts changing. And our desire for, for risk and for adventure gets less. Um, you know, that's why I say if you want to really make, you know, put an end to war, put men of my generation in the trenches. You know, put guys who are 60 years away, I promise you, they're not going to fight the way the 20-year-olds are going to fight, etc. It really comes back, you know, I, I don't want to kind of be too reductionistic in my thought, but biology plays a very strong role in our behaviors, determining our behaviors. They're going to be, yes, profound psychosocial influences as well, but they explain so much. They explain risk-taking, they explain the evolution of a career like James and his colleagues. And I think when you understand the biology, you get a good understanding of this profession. Anthony, I think that's a very important perspective, and I want to thank you, and I want to thank James for sharing of your time, your knowledge, your experience 
It's actually been such a privilege to have this conversation. I know that we could go on, but obviously we are constrained. And uh, just to say once again, thank you. And really, I enjoyed it, appreciated it, and I am sure that the listeners will uh, extract a lot of useful information and wisdom from everything that was discussed today. So thanks very much, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I think next time listeners see images on their TV screens, in magazines or newspapers, on social media, you'll be thinking a little bit more about the folk behind the cameras. And from the immortal Charles Bukowski, taken from his poem, How Is Your Heart? A fitting quote, I think, what matters most is how well you walk through the fire. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.